Hello, and welcome to the Time to Zero In podcast, produced by Break, the road safety charity, and hosted by me, Joshua Harris. This is the series where we speak with experts from across the safe and healthy mobility community to zero in on the issues, trends and innovations that can help us move towards a world where no one is killed or seriously injured on the roads and where we can all be confident to move about in a safe and healthy way every day. A vision for the future known as Vision Zero. Today, we're going to be zeroing in on young driver safety. My guest today is Liz Box, Head of Research at the RAC Foundation, a UK-based transport policy and research organisation. Liz is also currently writing a PhD on issues around young driver safety. In this episode, I'll be talking to Liz about the dangers facing young drivers on the roads, why they are at increased risk, and what measures can be introduced to improve young driver safety. Ahead of my chat with Liz, however, let's take time for a quick primer on Vision Zero. Vision Zero stems from the belief that every road death or serious injury is preventable. A Vision Zero approach to road safety is built upon two basic facts about people. One, we make mistakes, and we'll make mistakes when on the roads. And two, we are vulnerable to being killed or seriously injured if we're in a crash. Vision Zero recognises these facts and designs them out of the equation. Put simply, this means that the whole road environment, vehicles, infrastructure, speed limits, post-crash care, and road users work together as one system to minimise the chance of a crash, or, if a crash does take place, to prevent death or serious injury from occurring. At Break, we believe that every road death and serious injury is a preventable tragedy. So let's take time to zero in on the solutions that can make our vision of zero a reality. So our guest for today is Liz Box, Head of Research at the RAC Foundation, an organisation focused on exploring the economic, mobility, safety and environmental issues relating to roads and their users. Liz is a leading research voice in the sector, having been working at the foundation for, for nearly 15 years now. And is also currently writing a PhD on issues relating to young driver safety. And so it's a perfect guest for our discussion today. Welcome to the podcast, Liz. Hi, good to be here. Thanks, Josh. Now, I'd like to kick off uh, every, every podcast with a, a quick question to our guest. How did you make your last journey, Liz? And what one thing could have made it better from a safe and healthy mobility perspective? Okay, well, my last journey, I guess, like lots of people at the moment, was on foot. Um, I did the school run this morning because um, my usual commute used to be by train, but now it's it's uh, working at home due to COVID restrictions. But it's really nice to be able to go and stretch my legs um, before sitting down at the desk at the day. So I do appreciate that. I think we're quite lucky, actually, where we live, that uh, we live in quite a walkable area. It's quite flat, which, you know, good footpaths, which is, um, you know, welcome. And actually, a large proportion of all the school children, they do walk to school as well um but I think one of the really tricky things at the moment given social distancing requirements and having quite narrow pavements outside the schools is it's it gets quite busy at drop-off and pick-up time and you know people still do drive down the, the residential road that's there so while some people do park and walk it'd be great to see a few more I guess traffic management restrictions to make it safer for everybody to walk and to encourage people as well it's great to hear that. Even in places where there's there's good walking and cycling infrastructure already, there's still more that can be done to improve it, can it, to have safer roads for, for everyone. Now, um, I talked a little bit about your, your background there to start off the discussion, but can you perhaps tell us why you're interested in the area of young driver safety, our topic of discussion for today? I think I've always been interested in people and their motivations and their needs. I mean, actually, originally, I thought I was going to go into uh, town planning, but ended up moving into a sort of a 
a, a transport planning graduate scheme. I think I've always been drawn to that sort of big picture thinking. And I guess I was attracted to transport generally because, you know, transport is rarely an end in itself. And it's one of those areas, I think, where it works out well, people don't even notice it's there. But when things go wrong, everybody has something to say about it. So I think overall, it's a really interesting sector to work in. Before uh, joining the RAC Foundation, uh, I was working as a transport planner and actually that grounding in delivery about what actually happens in practice with real world constraints, I think has been really important as I've moved into thinking about policy at the sort of the national level. Essentially, my role at the foundation involves commissioning and disseminating research in all areas of, of transport policy. So we look across environmental, mobility, safety and economy issues. And I think as an NGO, we really sit between research, policy and practice and really aim to translate research thinking into actionable policy and practice. So currently, my day to day work revolves around two large scale research programmes. I'm managing the four year uh, DFT and Highways England funded road collision investigation project. And what we're trying to do there is seek to establish whether there's a business case for putting more resource into investigation of road crashes. And essentially, is there a role for a independent road collision investigation branch? So we'll be putting our report to government next spring and spring 2022. Alongside my work at the RAC Foundation, I'm a doctoral researcher at Cranfield University, where I'm researching pre-driver theatre and workshop education. Thanks for that, Liz. And I know we at Break really value the RAC Foundation as a partner who brings some fantastic research into the road safety space. And I have to give a, a little plug to one of our previous podcasts, which is on collision investigation, um, the topic you talked about that the RAC Foundation are involved um, in a project relating to that. That's great. We talked briefly about young drivers then, and that's, of course, the um, topic of discussion for today, young drivers and improving young driver safety. So, so to kick off on that, what does the data tell us about the risks that are facing young drivers on roads in the UK? What we know from the data is that young driver safety is a, a global public health concern and it, it transcends those national and political boundaries. And we're, we're not immune to it here in the UK. So worldwide, uh, road traffic injuries are now the leading cause of death of 15 to 29 year olds. So it's, it's a massive issue that we all need to um, look at ways in which we can uh, help solve this particular problem. So in, in the UK, young drivers make up 7% of all license holders, but they actually account for 23% of all killed and seriously injured casualties on our roads. So essentially, they're overrepresented in their uh, in casualties regarding how many of them are actually licensed. So in 2019, which is the latest data that we have available, there were 287 people killed from collisions involving a young driver. So that's over five people a week. And when we look at young drivers themselves, there's about 15 KSIs, so killed and seriously injured collisions happening a day involving young people directly. So this is something that's happening day in, day out, and has been happening for many, many years. So uh, the, the statistics do tell us that it's a problem that we need to be solving. And um, when we look at trends and collisions over time. So road traffic fatalities generally um, across the whole population, they've been broadly stable since 2010. Um, seriously injured collisions have declined a little bit over that time. But actually for the 17 to 24 age group since 2010, fatalities and serious injuries have actually fallen slightly for that age group. Um, although though the decrease in this population for that particular age group has also gone down over time. So there's thinking that that might be partly related to why we're seeing a de decrease in killed and seriously injured collisions within that group. The statistics also tell us that young males are at an elevated risk and that rural roads are also a particular problem for, for young drivers as well. 
Many thanks for sharing that, Liz. So that overrepresentation is clearly the issue we're, we're concerned about there. Are there any risky behaviours that are common to young drivers, um, which plays a part in, in having that overrepresentation in the data? And do we know why young drivers tend to behave in this way? Yeah, absolutely. There's certainly uh, risky driving behaviours that we're seeing amongst um, newly licensed drivers. So young drivers are prone to making errors, and this is errors of judgment. And this is largely down to often once they get on the road as a solo independent driver, they've still got a lot of experience that they need to have on road. Um, They're also prone to risky driving behaviours. So we see in the first uh, two years of driving that you are more likely to see higher G-force rates in in, uh, new drivers on the road. Road as well. And they're also susceptible to distraction. So this involves distracted by peer passengers and also by technology. I guess finally the thing to say is around the impairments that they're more likely to suffer. So young drivers as a result of their age actually are more likely to suffer from fatigue, particularly if they're doing shift work. Um, they're more likely to have sleep deprivation because the requirements for their sleep often don't fit in with the patterns of say college and, and life. And also if they do drink alcohol, they're more likely to be affected by it due to biological physiological reasons and I guess the one other thing to say on that is that when young drivers leave the the driving process and pass their test they may still come out with essentially a skills gap particularly in hazard perception awareness which research tells us is really really important to try and build up that ability to scan for hazards to know where latent hazards are as well because that's actually what uh, safer driving behavior looks like in more experienced drivers. So now that we know all those factors which perhaps put young drivers at a greater risk than, than other demographics does the law represent that are there changes in the law which treat young drivers differently to to any other drivers to take into account those those additional risks? Well, at the moment, there's not a huge difference in the law for um, young or essentially novice drivers. What we have at the moment is essentially the New Drivers Act. So this was introduced back in 1995. It took effect in June 1997. And essentially under this act, any driver, any new driver who gets six or more penalty points within two years of passing their test will have their license revoked. So there is essentially a requirement to try and push for safer behaviours at that early stage of driving. The Transport Research Laboratory have had a look at what effect putting this law in place has had and um, they found in their research that around about 10% of novice drivers are caught for committing an offence within their probationary period of two years and around 2% of drivers had their licence revoked under the New Drivers Act. So this analysis is starting to tell us that actually the Act may be having a beneficial effect on new driver offending patterns but clearly there's a lot else that we could be doing related to what other countries have looked at in this area. Fantastic. And I think that leads us really nicely into the next area of discussion, which is what can we do to improve young driver safety? So obviously, you've looked into this area in depth yourself. What what does the research and the data tell us about the most effective ways of improving young driver safety? The best place to start with, and and something I guess I didn't cover under the sort of risk factors, is actually young drivers themselves. um, There's a reason why they are more at risk. It's because of their age and it's also because of their experience. Now, there's also an important sort of biological background as well that's important to understand and sort of brain development. So there's been 20 years worth of research now on why they're at disproportional risk of injury. And in adolescence, young people go through what's called this sort of social behavioural transition so they're more likely to be influenced by their peers they're more likely to be optimistic about what they can achieve 
sharp changes in mood, they're more likely to seek novelty and take risks as well. And there's been this massive understanding um, in brain development over the last 10 to 20 years in the understanding of how synapses and um, stage brain development happens and what that means in terms of the frontal lobe developing, which is responsible for people's self-control. And we know that that doesn't develop until the mid-20s. So what we're having um, essentially in a vehicle situation is young people have got this hormonal environment where they have variable levels of dopamine and essentially they need to have more input to receive pleasure. So their brain's not fully developed and they've got this need for pleasure and this leads to risk taking and it, this can be exacerbated by their peers as well. So self-regulation and development, is, it, it's quite hard and it's something we need to bear in mind, I think, as we think about what are the suitable things that we put in place to help younger drivers be safer. Because you've essentially got the situations where they've got the brains they have in cars with peers in emotionally hot environments where not as able to plan as well as when they're in these sort of emotionally cool environments as well. So I guess we need to develop develop interventions that are designed for the brains that they have rather than the brains that we we wish they they might have instead so i guess given all of that um one of the sort of key areas of policy development is around licensing i mean that that is one of the the key things and making sure we have a robust phased licensing program in place um internationally this tends to be called graduated driving licensing or gdl and um essentially that tends to involve a number of components. So typically you'll have a minimum learning period, say 12 months where um, that is required before somebody can even take their test. And then after the test, there tends to be some short term uh, limitations on license use in those early stages, which typically involves a, a restriction on the number of passengers you can have in the vehicle and also restrictions on the, the time of day in which you travel. Um, and the whole purpose of this is essentially to incrementally manage young people's exposure to risks in environments that pose the greatest risk to safety, such as driving at night and with passengers. And a lot of uh, work has been done internationally and it's been in, in place for quite a few years elsewhere. And it's been a really effective approach at reducing uh, young driver collisions um, in that age group. And I know there are some perhaps arguments about the introduction of, of graduated driver licensing, potentially uh, here in the UK as well, which focus on the, the impact that these uh, measures could have on, on young people's mobility, potentially. Has there been ever, any evidence looking into that and what effect that's had in other countries who have introduced a, a form of graduated driver licensing? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's been a key consideration for all administrations that have been putting um, licensing processes in, in place. We would like to see some more research, actually, on the sort of social and economic costs of implementing these programmes. We think that will help make it a potentially more palatable option for political debate and for taking that forward. But from the evidence we've seen in other countries, of course, if you're going to change anything, there's always public concern to start with. But what they've seen is because uh, graduated driving licenses licensing processes tend to have a program of exemptions. So essentially, if you need to travel for education or you need to travel for work in certain conditions, then you can get an exemption for that. So the concerns around the fact that it would stop people accessing work and education, it, it doesn't actually come true. Even with those exemptions, you still end up with the benefits of essentially reducing the number of vehicles that are carrying large numbers of young passengers late at night, potentially after some sort of social occasion, which is where we find there to be particular problems. Thanks, Liz. And you talked about those various 
I guess, key interventions that could form a, a phase licensing process, the minimum uh, learning period, the restrictions on, on nighttime driving, potentially and driving with, with other passengers. Is there evidence which shows which one of those interventions perhaps is more effective than another? Or are they seen as sort of the, the core interventions of a phase licensing process altogether? Yes. I mean, we have done some work looking at if we were to introduce GDL in the UK, what would that look like and and how would it work and what would the effects be? So um, TRL did some research for us back in 2014. From that research, they said that actually around 450 fewer people could be expected to be hurt in an average year. Um, including 430 people who would otherwise be killed or seriously injured. So the economic value of that was around 201 million um, to GB every year. We actually did an update with some more recent figures um, in 2018. Those figures reduced slightly, well, probably about half actually, um, to about 281 fewer people killed and seriously injured in the collision. That's largely because of changing patterns in um, in travel behaviour. But in terms of which restriction do you put in place, there has been some work looking at the various different types and, and how that relates. But overall, they tend to come as a package. And I think our overall response to that is we can take which element of the package that you would like, because all different countries implement these things in different ways. And there is value and a accredited value for each of them. But whatever you do, it would help to bring uh, that risk level down for young people. I think that's a really interesting point that, that there is flexibility in the model, but any of those interventions would, would go some way into improving young driver safety. Now, there's lots of other mechanisms, I think, that are part of the debate when we talk about young driver safety and, and usage of things like telematics. Can you perhaps talk us through these um, and whether or not the evidence shows these interventions to be effective as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the UK has a very advanced telematics market, actually, in comparison to its uh, European neighbours. And obviously, the high cost of motor insurance is an issue of concern for, for young drivers, um, in particular, those that are seeking to access employment opportunities. So we've seen quite a high uptake of telematics insurance which tends to be more affordable for young people in the UK and uh, we understand from insurance providers as well that that demand has really increased um, over the last year as well so telematics insurance I don't think is, is going away anytime soon. I think there has been some discussion of is telematics a replacement for graduated driver licensing because essentially what it does is it will essentially provide some feedback to the driver about how they are performing on in terms of speed management instead in terms of harsh braking. I mean, actually, often a lot of the insurance companies now have some sort of coaching mechanism in place where they end up with behavioural psychologists calling up and implementing an intervention right there and then with the driver to try and improve their behaviours. So if we look at any behaviour change technique and what you want to do, you definitely want to get feedback in there so that people have an understanding of where they might not be being as safe and actually they are being observed as well. There's been a number of programmes, particularly in the States, that have looked at linking through to sort of parental um, observation of telematics programmes as well. One of the challenges there, I guess, is people look at things to start with, don't they, when they get a programme? And then as time goes on, people look at it less. So it's how do you actively manage? But telematics is certainly one of those areas that we we could be employing to engage parents um, a lot more about this really crucial sort of six to 12 months post licensure where you're kind of solo driving for the first time. You've lost your coach in the car and you've got a lot of other distractions potentially. And telematics is essentially that sort of electronic coach in the car, which can assist with that as well. 
Thanks, Liz. Uh, and this is completely uh, my area, but I've, I've used the term telematics there without perhaps explaining to some of our listeners who might not know exactly what it means. So are you able to give just a, a brief definition of what we mean when we, we say telematics? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, typically telematics used to be kind of you would insert a, a literally a black box into the vehicle. Um, it's done in various different ways now. Sometimes you can even have a dongle that you put in a cigarette lighter, but it essentially provides some sort of feedback to your insurance company about about how fast you're you're driving, how harsh your braking is, so the G-force events. Um, if you're if you're even it sometimes if you're even clipping a curb and there's sort of a movement in the vehicle, uh, the insurance companies have got a really good background data analysis to understand what that means in terms of your risk, and they will typically rate a journey or part of a journey is green, orange, and red. And when you get quite a lot of red flags, that's when your insurance company is going to be one charging you more and two wanting to change your behaviour so that you can reduce the chance of having a collision and therefore having a claim. So it's very much a kind of electronic feedback device in the vehicle um, where you're then often you end up with some sort of app on your mobile phone that provides you your score and shows you sometimes even what part of the road network you had problems with and how you might be able to improve it next time. So we've touched upon obviously the the overrepresentation of young drivers in the casualty statistics and that that's been the case for for a while now. So I guess the question is what is happening about this within um, UK government and amongst policymakers? So are you able to give us an overview about where the issue is at at present? Yeah, absolutely. So there are quite a lot of programmes that are running uh, from government at the moment. And lots of these stem from the road safety statement, which was published back in 2019. I guess there's research and then there's other activities. So to cover on the research front, so the DFT is funding two reasonably large research projects at the moment. The first one is uh, called Driver 2020. Uh, This is being run by the Transport Research Laboratory and it's a large scale randomised control trial which is testing additional driver training approaches such as skills training, e-learning, the use of mobile phone apps to support learning to drive and also post-porting the uh, post-licensing period as well. And essentially what they're doing there is trying to understand what effects all of these different interventions have on eventual uh, collision involvement. So as you can imagine, there's a huge number of pre-drivers or new drivers going through that system and being monitored over, I think, a two to three year period. So it's a very large scale program. It's probably one of the first actually in the world that's kind of looked at it in that depth. So it'll be really interesting to see the results of that. The other research program is one that the Driving Instructors Association is leading on and essentially this is trialing a coaching and e-learning approach for use in driving instruction. So really, the the government is very much saying it's awaiting the results of these research programmes to sort of find the best way forward for for young driver safety. Now, obviously, as a researcher, I always support the the need for more research and making sure what you're doing is evidence based. But I think some of the concern uh, myself and I think other researchers and people active in this field feel at the moment is we do actually have quite a lot of evidence from um, international experience about what works and what doesn't and there's a potential issue of delaying putting some processes in place that could help and I've already talked about sort of strengthening the licensing system even if that were to set a minimum learning period uh, without other things that would also kind of help. 
We've also had the recent Transport Select Committee inquiry uh, that was held in the autumn last year. Probably to put it mildly, many of the people that contributed to that inquiry and are active in this field were pretty disappointed as there was not a lot of new activity that was put forward. This is a big public health issue. This is young people injuring both themselves, other people on the network. And we do have quite a lot of information about how you can prevent this. So it was really disappointing to see a not a, a massive set of recommendations in there. The sort of welcome things that came out of that is the Transport Select Committee is asking the Department for Transport to push for updates on research work progress because I guess they can see that a lot of future action depends on the success of this research so that's always good although both of these research programs I understand have been affected by COVID so there may well be some understandable delays coming forward. They also in the report recognised the importance of understanding the role of technology to increase safety. And there was a lot of discussion in the inquiry about telematics. And as I said, there is a lot of evidence about telematics, but it often resides in private companies um, for good reason, because it's often an insurance led initiative. So it'd be great to see some of that learning being brought into the policy space so that some further decisions can be made about how telematics fits into the, the overall options that we decide to put across. The other thing that was positive within the report was uh, recommending the resumption of a study on social and economic consequences of GDL. This was originally essentially dropped by the government as they said they weren't going to progress it further. So it'd be interesting to see the DFT's response on to what extent they will take up that recommendation. And there was a concern raised about intensive driving courses, which had been raised during the inquiry. Essentially, intensive driving courses involve people going for a very short period of time, often on private lands, to learn how to drive a vehicle and often this can lead to uh, young people or anybody else actually passing their driving test pretty quickly and where we have concerns about that from the research perspective is that if you don't have very much on-road experience we know that that relates to having greater problems further down the line when you're fully licensed so um, it'd be good if the government could commission some work in the area a systematic evidence review would pretty quickly show them the difficulties of taking that approach so it was good to see that highlighted as well I've spoken about it earlier, but rural roads are a particular issue that we need to look at, not just for young drivers, but for all drivers, because they're uh, part of the road network where we see the greatest number of, of collisions and injuries. And there was a recommendation to reset up a uh, working group that was supposed to be set up originally, actually, but it's been taking some time to, to get going. So I guess there was quite a lot in there about revisiting some things that were, I guess, originally proposed. But I think the key issue for me is that given the gravity of the risks faced by young drivers and the solid evidence for strengthening the licensing process, the report feels a little bit too much, I guess, wait and see. I guess the final thing I would say about the inquiry itself was that there were some issues many of us felt around the way in which some of it had been conducted. So obviously, when you're looking to implement any policy, it's really important to understand public opinion. That's a key um, requirement ingredient in terms of what's what's acceptable to do and how you're going to proceed. Um, as part of the inquiry, 14 teenagers were involved in the uh, inquiry session with the Transport Select Committee, and they asked them, you know, questions about how would you feel about graduating 
driver licensing and what would it do for your lives and how difficult it would it be. So there were some concerns that those 14 voices um, kind of overshadowed some of the international evidence that we know about the effectiveness of these sorts of approaches. And I, I think going forward, it'd be great to make sure that future inquiries do kind of weigh up the evidence they receive and look at kind of accumulated evidence bases, because it's really hard to see that sort of approach being taken in any other area of public health. And I think one of our biggest challenges actually is getting road safety seen as a public health issue that needs to be dealt with in the same way that we deal with any other public health issues that we face. Thanks for that, Liz. And we certainly echo all those points in particular, I guess, the disappointment with the, some of the recommendations in, in the report. Obviously, at break, we work with the families of road crash victims through our National Road Victim Service. And, and some of them support us in our campaigning efforts related to young driver safety, because unfortunately, and, and tragically, they've lost loved ones in a, in a young driver crash. We know the, the gravity of need for this point and, and echo your point there as well, that the evidence base is there. We really feel now is the time for policy to move along with that evidence base and us to actually make some changes, which make the roads safer for everyone, which I think is everyone's ambition when it comes to all this. Now, we've covered lots of points on, on, on the discussion today, and I, I really appreciate your time, Liz. And I think we've probably had a sense of how you would answer this question. But I'm interested to know, I guess, if you had a, a magic wand, what would you do to improve young driver safety over, you know, tomorrow you got in charge of this? What, what were your immediate next steps? Well, that would be great, wouldn't it? But uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I guess the key thing here is there is a wealth of knowledge available to inform the UK on what next steps we should be taking to reduce death and injury amongst this group. And the point that's often made is that actually it's really hard to precisely identify higher and lower risk individuals in this group. And therefore, you really need a population based approach rather than one that focuses on individuals. So that kind of, I guess, is a, a thread that should run through. It's, it's something I talk about a lot, but we really do need to take a systems approach to young driver safety. So that means not focusing on fixing the individual, but improving safety across the whole system. So we're talking about laws, we're talking about enforcement and how we can bring the approaches we take in road safety in line with the approaches that are taken in public health. I think the system is, is vitally important, joining up as much as we can across the sector so that no particular area of intervention is working in isolation, that we're working together and that that message can come across to the public. And I think if you were to do one thing and make the biggest change, undoubtedly it would be about strengthening the licensing system. Because essentially, strengthening the licensing system means that you can then put education and enforcement in place that supports that licensing system. It makes it much easier to convey to young people and parents about what the rules are and what their expectations are and how parents can support um, young people in that early move towards independent mobility, independent motorised mobility. Education has its role to play. It's, it's where I'm working in my um, research area. I think we need to work out how best the education like enforcement can support the system but it would be much easier to be able to convey these points across about how long you should be learning to drive for what the risks are when you first pass your test and when you're driving with your peers in the car it'd be much easier to get those messages across to young people and for them to accept them and to take them on board if we had the laws in place to support that and uh it would also help with giving parents kind of concrete tools. So in countries where graduated driver licensing is in place, you have these uh, parenting agreements where parents will talk to young people about well, what agreement are we going to come to within the first few months of your driving? What's it going to look like? Then we review it. And it's kind of an active um monitoring of the situation because it's a very very risky situation for young people to be in solo for the first time 
And I guess with, you know, education more generally, we're not at the point where we can adopt best practice. There's a lot of work to be done there. And the work I'm doing as part of my research is looking at how can we help young people develop strategies and the personal and social skills they need to cope with young driver and passenger risk factors, because they are going to be facing these risks and we don't prepare them very well at the moment for how best to deal with those. So how can education support Hazard perception training is a really, really effective tool. Uh, obviously, we do have that as part of the driving test, but the more we can get young people to do that, the better. And one of the other things that comes across in the research is we know how important hazard perception testing is and training, but actually a young driver's social environment, the research has found is just as important as training them on hazard perception. So this involves parental engagements, helping to develop positive peer relationships and social environments. Um, we currently do very, very little in this space. And so it'd be really good to see a huge amount more done to try and develop positive social norms in this whole area. Thanks for that, Liz. That's that's an incredibly thorough answer. And I think we could do a lot worse than having you responsible for, for improving young driver safety uh, in the UK. And it's fantastic to make that point around the systems approach and safe systems as this podcast is focused on Vision Zero and, and the safe systems approach. So it's great to come back full circle on that point. We really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. And this has been excellent. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Josh.